Well, we'll be back in 2 Corinthians again this morning. Chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians, chapter 2. We'll start in verse 5. And now you can be stand again. <laughs> 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 2, 5. These are the words of God. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather graciously forgive him and comfort him, lest such a one be swallowed up by excessive sorrow. Therefore, I encourage you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might know your proven character, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you graciously forgive anything, I graciously forgive also. For indeed, what I have graciously forgiven, if I have graciously forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would cause your word this morning to convict us of our sins, that it would drive all of our excuses away and humble us before your perfect law of liberty, and seeing just how much we fall short of that law, that your word would then drive us to the only source of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Please grant it to us, and amen. You can be seated. Well, we've reached a point in the text of 2 Corinthians that is slightly different from what we've covered so far in the book. So far, everything we've covered except for the brief introduction that has been given by Paul is him laboring to uh, refute the Corinthians' objections to his apostleship. And although Paul will continue to defend himself in the book, as we'll pick up even in the next chapter. What we have this morning is Paul beginning to address particular problems within the Corinthian congregation. Specifically, in this text, we read about Paul's instructions to the Corinthians in regards to how to deal with someone who has been excommunicated from the church, but has been brought to repentance. Many commentators link this repentant individual with the man who was uh, thrown out of the church in 1 Corinthians 5. I'm not sure we have enough information to decide on that. But what we can gather from the context, as well as other hints we get in chapter 7, is that this offender was most likely one of the men who uh, was in the church who rose up to cast doubts on Paul's ministry. If we back up to verse 4, we read, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have abundantly for you. Here Paul is mentioning that severe letter, a letter we don't have a copy of today, but we do know that Paul said many harsh things in that letter in order to correct uh, misconduct and indecency in the church. And it's on the heels of Paul mentioning the sorrow that that letter might have caused in the congregation that he launches into a conversation on the one who really caused all the sorrow in the church. That is the offender, this person that was excommunicated. But regardless, we have apostolic instruction on how the church is to handle a situation where church discipline has restored a brother to right standing with God. Paul's exhortation in, this, in light of this glorious reality, in light of a true believer coming to his senses and casting off the heinousness of his sin, is to tell the Corinthians that they need to provide him with full and free forgiveness, restoring him again to the fellowship of the body. Now the concept before us this morning, forgiveness, is one of the most challenging concepts in all of Christian theology. Not exactly because the text is hard to interpret or because there's tons of theological debate surrounding the issue. No, I'm afraid the text is plain enough. But it's challenging to grasp the concept of forgiveness as the New Testament teaches it because of just how highly we view ourselves, really. 
The idea that we're to provide for others full and unreluctant forgiveness for all the wrongs they've done to us, that we're to open our arms wide to receive those who have done all sorts of evil against us, that is a hard concept to grasp. Again, not because the text is really that challenging to interpret, but because we don't usually like what it says. But I hope that as we walk through the text, we'll be able to see just how fitting that forgiveness is with the message of the gospel. So beginning in verse 5, we read, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. We think about Paul writing his severe letter, burdened by the sin of the church, and he says in verse 4 that he wrote with anguish and tears, but even with the immense grief that this offender had caused Paul, his main focus isn't on his own sorrow. He immediately turns his concern to the Corinthian congregation. He had just told them to purge the evil member out from among them, to exercise church discipline. Had Paul been present when the offender rose up, he probably would have handled it himself, but he had to write them from afar and exhort the congregation to discipline the man and drive him out of the fellowship. That's not exactly an easy request, and Paul knows that. So he says that this offender hasn't principally caused sorrow to him for doubting his ministry, but he has cast sorrow upon the entire church. To drive someone from the congregation of God, perhaps we don't understand the severity of this as well as we should, but driving someone out of the congregation isn't just an empty gesture. The Corinthians had to turn over this offender, likely a man that they had been in fellowship with a long period of time by now, one who sat with them every week at the love feast, we read in 1 Corinthians, who had stood beside them as they partook of the supper. They might have even been present as he was raised out of the waters of baptism. And Paul wrote to them that this friend they knew, probably intimately, would need to be delivered over to Satan, he says, for the destruction of his flesh. Again, this isn't just some empty gesture. Excommunication is the pronouncement of the church to the effect that this person, whom you might have grown to love and cherish, is a traitor to the kingdom of God. They've been given immense light. They've sat under the preaching of the word, partaken of the sacraments, enjoyed the fellowship of the saints, and despite all this, they've spurned the gospel of grace. And excommunication is the church saying to that offender, friend, although we love you, although we have been your friend thus far, we hereby declare on the authority of the word of God, there is no reason to believe that you know Christ. At which point, they deliver over the offender to that kingdom which they seem to belong, the kingdom of darkness. Again, Paul says to deliver them over to Satan himself in 1 Corinthians. But it's not out of spite. It's not as if the church is glorying and reveling in this. No, as we see in verse 5 of our text, the offender causes great sorrow to the congregation, but he's delivered over in hopes that he might be saved in the day of Jesus Christ, that he might see the gravity and severity of his sin and cry out to the Lord for restoration, that he might know just how much the Lord despises his sin and he might see the Lord's holiness afresh. Someone once asked R.C. Sproul what the main problem confronting the church is today. I hope his answer resonates with all of us. He said, we don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. We are clueless to just how holy the Lord of hosts is, just how pure he is, and just how white-hot his wrath is against sin. And even when we start to catch a glimpse of that reality in the Scriptures, it means nothing if we don't know who we are, if we don't know how sinful we really are. And church discipline, excommunication, is our loudest plea. It's the loudest we can shout, Dear friend, do you not understand how much the Lord despises your sin? And with tears in our eyes, we deliver them over to Satan in hopes they will finally see clearly. I'm afraid that's not how churches today view church discipline, if they even practice it at all. It isn't unloving. It isn't over the top. It's the last tool we have to plead with the unrepentant. Please come back to fellowship with Christ. Sin sneaks in and destroys lives. 
When left alone without repentance, sin doesn't stay where it is. But it's like leaven working through a lump of dough. It spreads and festers and grows until everything is corrupted. So as much as the offender might ignore the pleas of the body to return to Christ, to come back to Christ, they have to do it while they see all around them the catastrophic consequences of their sin. The complete chaos that ensues when Christ is set aside for the sake of sin. And we hope that the chaos of their sin, the chaos which will be impossible to ignore forever, will drive them there to their knees to reconcile with God. That they'll be like the prodigal son who had to get on his knees and eat the slop that was meant for pigs before he realized he needed to reconcile with his father. And as much as we see church discipline having the opposite effect in our day, mostly I'm afraid because you can just walk down the street and slip into another congregation, But as much as we see church discipline cause further strife and obstinance, this text before us is our hope. Our hope that God knew what he was doing when he inspired Matthew 18. That he knew what he was doing when he told us how to carry out this process faithfully. And now Paul has to write to the Corinthians to encourage them to receive back that repentant believer with full and unbounded forgiveness. Oh, how I hope we become as privileged as the Corinthians. That we can see God's wisdom displayed in bringing sinners to repentance through the discipline of the church that we could have the opportunity to welcome back those who have walked away from our own midst. We can already see just how freely Paul has forgiven the offender in verse 5. Read it again. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, he says, in order not to say too much, to all of you. That little sidebar in the text, that little in order to say uh, not to say too much, gives us a glimpse into what kind of forgiveness is offered by Paul. It looks like not rehearsing and recounting the offender's sin. We see Paul bring up this repentant believer, but we have a hard time really identifying who he is because Paul's not bringing up his sins. He seems reluctant not to mention too much. Some translations say not to put it too severely. Sometimes forgiveness can seem so hard to pin down. How do we know whether we've truly forgiven someone? How do we know if we've really given that person complete and full forgiveness? The biggest indicator of whether you've actually forgiven someone who's wronged you is whether you continually rehearse and dwell on their sin Forgiveness isn't just telling someone you forgive them. Even if you stop talking about how someone has sinned against you, that's not necessarily forgiveness. Just stopping audibly talking about it is not forgiveness. The question is, does their wrongdoing still fill you with bitterness? Are you still thinking of it often? Are you rehearsing it in your head? If you are, then dear brother, it's you who needs to repent, not just your offender. We have this strange concept in our culture today. I'm not exactly sure where it comes from, but it holds victims up almost as if they can't actually sin against their victimizers. So that if we've wronged or sin, been wronged or sinned against someone else, it's almost as if our response to that sin just doesn't really matter. That even if we behave poorly, even if we repay evil for evil, our, our culture just says, well, they were the victim after all. You may think I'm overreacting, but I see it all the time. It might be a husband who wrongs his wife, and because he was the guilty party, and he really is the guilty party, it's as if the wife is off the hook for her response. Like it's okay if she remains in bitterness toward him because she's the victim. Brothers, that's not how Christians are to think about sin. We read this in Romans 12. Let's turn there. Romans chapter 12. In verse 17 of Romans 12, never paying back evil for evil to anyone Respecting what is good in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men. Never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. The Christian response to evil can't be to pile more evil on top of it. God despises sin no matter who's committing it. We see this, like I mentioned, in marital conflicts. Uh, But let me give you an example. It's more of an extreme example, but tell me if you've heard this. It just illustrates the concept so well. You have to understand, I'm not for abortion, per se, myself, but if a woman is raped, if she's suffered this great tragedy, who am I to tell her that she has to carry that child? Now, I know we're jumping into the deep end with that example, and that really deserves a sermon in and of itself. But it expresses so well the principle I'm trying to get at. Because this woman was sinned against, and she was, was she not? Heinously sinned against. But because she was sinned against, we want to give her a pass on her own sin. As if God doesn't hate sin as long as it's committed by a victim. Brothers, that's not how God views sin. Sadly, we live in a fallen world that causes great and untold amounts of suffering. But we cannot violate the law of God because we're suffering. We can't choose to sin because we've been hurt. As impossible as it seems at times, we're called not to respond to evil with evil, but to combat the works of darkness by responding with good. And that's why Paul is giving this exhortation to the Corinthians. He's affirming, yes, this person caused you sorrow. Yes, they wronged you. But please realize that doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility to forgive them. We read in verse 6, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. He's received his punishment at the hands of the church, and Paul says, that's enough. If the punishment had worked like it was intended to, which it did in this case, then Paul says that there's no more punishment needed. There's no need to drag their sin before them any longer. There's no need to keep them at arm's distance. Listen to Christ's words on the matter in Luke 17. You don't have to turn there. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, Christ says, and returns to you seven times a day, saying, I repent, forgive him. Someone might ask, but how do I know whether I can trust them? What if they just keep on sinning against me? Here's Jesus' answer. Forgive him anyway. How many times have you had to drag yourself back before the throne of Christ to ask him to absolve you? If you expect Christ to keep forgiving you, although you sin against him every day in thought, word, and deed, how can you withhold forgiveness to someone who sins against you? In the context of verse 6, how does the church know that this offender won't turn around and commit the same sins that he did before? Perhaps he will. It's quite possible. And if he sins again, guess what the church is called to do? Call him to repentance and forgive him. I'm not arguing that we should be gullible or naive. Paul does give the fruits of true repentance, that we can judge true repentance in chapter 7. But it's a Christian's duty, and it should be the Christian's joy to provide full and complete forgiveness every time someone repents. So Paul says the punishment was enough. The excommunication served its purpose. And now in verse 7, on the contrary, you should rather graciously forgive him and comfort him, lest he be swallowed up by excessive sorrow. Don't hold his sin over his head, but clear his record of wrongs against you and restore him to full fellowship with the body. On top of the forgiveness, Paul says to comfort him. We saw in chapter 1 the means by which God comforts sinners, by his character, by his promises, and by his people. Paul not only expects the Corinthians to forgive the offender, not just to welcome him back before in the four walls of the church, but he expects them to come alongside him and comfort him, lest he be overwhelmed with sorrow to come alongside the man who's burdened over his sins and remind him of the promises of God. That God has removed his sin as far as the east is from the west. That although he has sinned grievously against the church, he's been reconciled and welcomed back with full and complete fellowship with the saints. If the Corinthians don't do this, if they don't come alongside him and reassure him of the forgiveness that he has in Christ, then he'll be overwhelmed with sorrow, Paul says. That is, he won't really understand the extent of God's forgiveness. 
If the Corinthians model for the offender a forgiveness, a forgiveness that's only partial and half-hearted, then why wouldn't he think that God views him just as half-heartedly? That God is likewise holding him out at arm's length? No, they were to forgive the offender in the same way that God in Christ had forgiven them. Amen. That begs the question, how has God in Christ forgiven us? I'm just going to read a few texts. This is from Psalm 103. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. Isaiah 43. I, even I, I'm the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Exodus 34. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And last one, Micah 7. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So we see that in God's forgiveness, he doesn't just utter the words, I forgive you. No, we have an example after example of God setting our sin aside, covering it, not looking at it any longer. And this is the way that the Corinthians are to receive the one who had wronged them. I don't deny that this is difficult. Of course it is. But as so, is so often the case, the only way we can spur ourselves on to actually live up to the high standards that God has laid down in his word is to look to the glories of the gospel, to look at what Christ has done in the gospel. Christians are the only ones who could possibly understand forgiveness in this fullest sense. The only ones who can actually extend full pardon to those who have committed all kinds of wickedness against us. And it's because we know just how much we've been forgiven in Christ. Turn to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 23. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. For this reason, he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Therefore, the slave fell to the ground and was prostrating himself before the Lord, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And feeling compassion, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. We see this massive debt the slave owed the king, a debt which he could never have been able to pay back. And the king, out of pure grace, forgave the slave of all that he owed. That's the picture of the gospel. Nothing that we have ever done could earn this forgiveness. There's nothing we could offer the king, yet he chose to wash us completely and finally, by the blood of his son. But we read on in verse 28 of Matthew 18. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and was pleading with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, the king said to the slave, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? 
And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he could repay all that was owed. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. I don't think that any other parable could really capture what we're talking about as well as this one. You have a slave who didn't understand in the slightest the graciousness that had been extended to him. If he did, he couldn't have possibly been so unforgiving with his fellow slave. And when we refuse to forgive those who have wronged us, we show that we have little understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we have very little understanding of just how undeserving of divine mercy we really were. So again, as is so often the case, the only way that practical obedience is going to occur in the lives of Christians is if we press on to a deeper and more profound understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, the only, it's only the gospel that stirs up true children of God to piety. You can try to muscle your way through obedience to Christ. You can try all you want, but until you behold the glory of God in the gospel, you will fall flat on your face at your attempts at obedience. We aren't meant to have some cold, robotic, mechanistic Christian life that obeys just for obedience' sake. Far from it, we're to let the truths of the gospel mold and shape our hearts, to transform our hearts in such a way that obedience is a natural outflow of our contentment in Christ. If your obedience isn't a spirit-empowered obedience that finds its zeal in holding and beholding the glories of the gospel, then I'm sorry to say you're going to have to be worn down pretty quickly by your obedience. You're going to be beaten down trying to follow a law that in your flesh is impossible to fulfill. You don't need moralism. You don't need bare commandment keeping. You need a life transformed by union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the farther you press on into the glories of that Christ in the gospel, the more natural obedience becomes. In regards to this specific command, forgiveness, the more you actually understand the debt that was forgiven you in the gospel, the more you will become eager and glad to forgive any that has wronged you. But back in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians, back in verse 7, they were commanded not only to forgive freely from the heart, but Paul's command to come alongside the offender and comfort him shows that there's also a reconciliation, a restoration of relationship. Again, that's exactly what we see in the gospel. The Father forgives us, declares us righteous, but he also reconciles us to himself and adopts us as children. Think about how much less glorious the gospel would be if the Father simply forgave us and let us out of the torments of hell. That's glorious, it is. But the height of the gospel is seen in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that is, having been forgiven, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. James White points out, this word peace has the idea of wellness of relationship. Like two armies who were once at war but had been brought to lay down their arms and fight no longer. It's the kind of reconciliation we read about in verse 8 of our text. Therefore, I encourage you to reaffirm your love for him. We read in scripture really about two types of forgiveness, and both are needed. There's a sort of immediate and unilateral forgiveness that we should offer when certain sins can be overlooked, when they can be passed by, when they were just petty sins that don't need to be dwelt on. We read about that in Proverbs 17:9. He who covers a transgression seeks love. We don't have to demand repentance and confront brothers for every slight against us. This could look like making a joke, perhaps a joke that wasn't particularly thoughtful, or someone acting uncharacteristically short with their spouses, let's say, because they're running short on time maybe to get somewhere. Don't misunderstand me. That's all sin. It should all be repented of. But there is a place out of love for your brother to simply forgive from the heart without confronting them or bringing up their sin to them. But on the other hand, like we see in our text here, sometimes sins are so flagrant, in, um, so flagrant that this unrepentant sin causes this breaking of a relationship. It divides relationships. 
you wrong someone, and that causes that peace, that wellness of relationship that should exist between you to be broken. And at that point, we should have a disposition that desires reconciliation, that seeks it out, or to be uh, going out and seeking peace, as Christ says, that goes to a brother and humbly reproves him of his sin so that he might repent and you can be restored back to your previous state of peace. We hear too often these days about driving toxic people out of our lives, setting up all kinds of boundaries to keep people out. That's not the Christian attitude toward forgiveness. Again, Christ says that if a person comes to you seven times in a single day and repents of what he's done, you're to forgive him and be reconciled to the brother every time. And that means you're to cover over his sin, not bring it back up, either to him or yourself. When we talk about driving toxic people out of our lives, we're clearly still stewing on their sin, are we not? We're saying, well, because of how they've wronged me in the past, and here's the part we don't like to admit, because I'm still bitter about how they treated me, I'm going to drive that person out of my life as far as I can. If you're sitting here right now, and you know that's you, that you're still harboring bitterness and resentment in your heart against someone for what they've done to you, I say humbly, Christian, you need to repent. First of your unforgiveness, and then for belittling what God has done for you in the gospel. Are you more important than God? That sins against you and your pride are so great that they can't be forgiven. But they're the ones who have sinned, you say. Why should I have to seek them out for forgiveness? Why is that my problem if they're the ones who sinned against me? Because, dear brothers, you're called to be like Christ. A Christ who died for us while we were yet sinners. A Christ who laid down his life to purchase divine forgiveness for people who never asked for it. Because you've been called to be like that Christ. And back in verse 9, For to this end also I wrote, that is, he wrote his previous letter, this severe letter, so that I might know your proven character, whether you're obedient in all things. Paul did call upon the church to discipline the offender, that's for sure. But he was also using the situation to test the majority of the church to see if they were going to recognize Paul's authority and obey his command. Paul wasn't commanding them to discipline the offender out of vengeance or spite. He commanded them to do so because that was the will of Christ, as we read it in Matthew 18. The inference from the text, of course, is now I'm writing, 2 Corinthians, to see if you'll be obedient to what else Christ has commanded in Matthew 18. That you're to forgive and restore the one who repents. And in verse 10, but one who you graciously forgive anything, I graciously forgave also. For indeed, what I have graciously forgiven, if I have graciously forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes and the presence of Christ. Let's break that down and take it one piece at a time. He says, but one whom you graciously forgive anything, that is, if they forgive and reconcile with the offender, then Paul says, I'll graciously forgive also. I'll consider that man as a reconciled brother, no longer a Gentile who is be, to be kept from the communion of God. And we have to remember it was Paul that uh, the offender rose up against. It was Paul that the offender was speaking out against. It was his challenging of Paul's authority that caused this whole mess in the first place. But Paul is modeling what it looks like for this reconciliation and forgiveness to take place. Yes, he was wronged but he's more than willing to set aside the offender's sin and move on. But reconciliation doesn't happen at an individual level when we're talking about church discipline. So Paul is encouraging and exhorting the whole congregation to share his desire for forgiveness. He says, For indeed, what I have graciously forgiven, if I have graciously forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes, he says, in the presence of Christ. Paul has already forgiven this man from the heart. That idea of forgetting and covering sin that we talked about previously. But that reconciliation piece isn't something he can do alone. The man that was estranged from the whole church, not just Paul. But Paul says, I have forgiven him from the heart for your sakes, Corinthians. It's difficult to see from the text 
how Paul's offend, uh, forgiving the offender could be for the sake of the Corinthians, that is, until we read verse 11, so that, he says, no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. If you want a reason to forgive, if you really want a reason why you shouldn't harbor bitterness against, your heart, uh, against someone in your heart, this is it. If we let ourselves carry on in resentment and bitterness toward others, we stop acting as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, displaying and mirroring the kind of forgiveness that he offers, and we begin to act as ambassadors for Satan himself. Now, Satan is a defeated foe. Colossians 2 says that Christ has disarmed rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. Satan is a defeated foe. His destruction and failure have been secured by the death and resurrection of Christ. But he still roams the earth like a lion, uh, Peter says, seeking people to devour. Satan's ultimate mission to rule and reign over the world was thwarted when Christ rose on high and took his seat at the right hand of the Father. It's Christ who rules over the nations as King of kings and Lord of lords. Satan doesn't get that position. So think of how silly it is for us who have been redeemed by the king, who have been seated in heavenly places to rule and reign with Christ, as Ephesians says, to give ourselves over to the schemes of hell. He's a defeated foe, the text says. Vanquished, conquered, no power over believers. Hebrews 2 says that he's been rendered powerless. He has no power over you. And despite all that, Paul is saying, when we refuse to forgive and show forth in our lives the forgiveness of the gospel, we're really falling prey to the only method Satan has left, to deceive believers. We who have been redeemed by Christ, who have been rescued from the power and influence of sin and the devil, filled with the Holy Spirit to enable us to choose good over evil, the only way Satan can take advantage of us now is by hoping we spurn the gospel of grace and go to him voluntarily. All his sway and influence for the believer has been, in principle, defeated. And so his last resort could be likened to setting up a little lemonade stand on the side of the road and desperately hoping we voluntarily pull aside and come to him. He can't possess us or do anything of that nature, so he makes a big sign holding forth what he perceives to be the glories of sin and disbelief in hopes that we'll walk away freely from Christ and walk toward him. James 4 says, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. He's gone. That's the kind of power Satan has over a believer. All we have to do is resist him and he'll flee. What Paul's getting at here is that the Corinthians really do have power through the Holy Spirit to drive out bitterness and unforgiveness. They really can freely and fully forgive as they have been forgiven in Christ. But if they don't, they're choosing willingly to let the devil reign. Paul says, we're not ignorant of his schemes. We know what he wants. He wants chaos. He wants sin and darkness to overwhelm and divide the people of God. And as strange as it seems, when we let the love of Christ flow freely out of us by forgiving even our enemies, the kingdom of Satan is being thwarted, and the kingdom of righteousness is manifested even more plainly. You have the same power to forgive as the Corinthians did. You share with them in the same Holy Spirit. You have the same example set for you in the gospel. So let us be a people who are willing and glad to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. And before we close, the most obvious application of our text this morning, of course, is how our attitude should be toward those who have walked out from our own midst. How badly do you hope for the reconciliation to the body? How often do you cry out to God for their souls? And how willing and eager are you to forgive and reconcile with your brothers? To welcome them back with joy, to reaffirm your love for them, as Paul says in verse 8. I pray, I really do, that God would give us that opportunity. Amen. And we should pray in faith that he will give us that opportunity. But that means we need to prepare ourselves as well as we, sh as we can for him to actually answer our prayers? How willing are we to forget their sins? 
not to keep them at arm's length or ostracize them, but rather to welcome them back into the joy of fellowship with the body. Like it was for the Corinthians, it'll be a test of our obedience, a test of how well we understand really how much we've been forgiven in Christ. And I pray that by God's grace, we'll not only be tested in that way, I hope he does test us in that way, but that we'll pass with flying colors. And if you will, stand with me and let's pray that God would make these truths that we know from his word to be present in our lives. Father, I pray that you would use this portion of your word to transform us, to be more like Christ, that we would recognize just how abundant your grace is toward us. And Father, if you would be so gracious, let the discipline of your church produce reconciliation and forgiveness. I pray you do it for your own glory. Amen.